Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Well, hello, Dressed listeners, and welcome to the 42nd edition of Fashion History Now. Yay, it's been a minute since we've done one. (laughs) And in fact, I will admit something. Cass and I had so much to say. We actually had to limit the amount of things we're going to talk about today. So expect another one coming probably pretty soon. Yeah, when we first started these, we intended to do them like almost twice a month. And, you know, there's so much great content out there. Um, They kind of come every couple months now, but we um we love we love doing these fashion history now check-ins because it really allows us to discuss, you know, kind of what's happening in fashion history now and give you suggestions of things to watch, read, go do. So that's why we love doing these. And we have plenty to talk about today, including I wanted to just make a brief mention, April, about our new foray into Instagram reels. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We we want to know what you all think of the reels versus the static posts. You know, it, it's it's an experiment. We're getting better at it. I I I, I would have to say, but um, I am I am the one who is the technophobe here, not Cass. <laughs> I know, but you've been doing the real, I mean, I think yours are almost better than mine. I mean, I guess we don't need to compare, (laughs) but you've been doing such a good, thoughtful job with them. Your Emily Floga reel was fantastic. And I think it's just really wonderful for listeners, I'm sure, to see images animated in that way, because I think ideally this podcast, you would have like images, right, attached to them, so... Yep, for sure. So let us know what you all think. Do you like the reels better? Do you like the static format better? In theory, our our concept behind the reels was doing less posts because, you know, it's going to save us a little bit more time. But I don't know if it's actually the case. Just saying. It does yeah. take a while. <laughs> yeah, save less time. But also because Instagram decided that they weren't really going to show our static posts anymore. They were switching to a Reels format. And of course, as soon as April and I started to master Reels formats, they've decided that they're going back to the old format. So you'll probably see a combination of both moving forward. But let us know. Yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, So April, if I may, I wanted to start today's conversation with just kind of a fun, lighthearted little bit of news that I read this summer. So I don't know if you've heard of the account Upworthy on Instagram. Um, I think so. I think I follow them. Or maybe we follow them on the Dressed account, but it's around. Yeah. It's in my brain somewhere. They bill themselves as a daily dose of, quote, the best of humanity. So they're kind of one of those accounts, like, I also follow the Good News Movement. And oh, it's yeah. Just, I do, know, too. Because there's so much horrible things happening in the world. Like, these are accounts that are just dedicated in bringing you joy and putting a smile on your face. And they posted the sweetest article or um, piece of news in June. It was amusing, but also so heartwarming. So did you know that sea urchins protect themselves by putting rocks and shells on top of their spines? Oh, no. No, that's cute. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, they don't have eyes. They don't look, they look themselves look like rocks, but they're actually living creatures in the sea. And so apparently some aquarium enthusiasts, according to this post, started making tiny hats with 3D printers so that the urchins would protect themselves in like a stylish way. (laughs) It's the cutest thing you've ever seen. So they have like little tiny cowboy hats and top hats and witches hats, and there's a crown, and there's kind of one of those like Viking hats with like the little horns coming out. And yeah, the sea urchins, you you know, take them as they would a rock and put them on. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what? Millinery and hats seems to be a very um, present theme on dress. Let's just say that we have more than one episode on millinery coming up very shortly. Yes, obviously, Tuesday's episode was with Stephen Jones, and you'll have to tune in next week for another episode on the art and craft of making hats. Yes. Okay, well, I have a news item, Cass, and I've actually been sitting on this one for quite some time, and I think I'm about to make a bunch of people's wildest wish come true or or one of their wildest wishes. I know I have been waiting for this for a very long time. Okay. Cass, how many times have you been to a wedding or some other event that calls for high heels and by the end of the night, your shoes are off and you're holding your shoes in your hand? Yes. Or my early 20s going to the club, we should say. Yes. yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, I think most of us have been there at least once. And, you know, forever we're all wondering, why hasn't someone invented shoes where you can convert your high heels to flats as your night progresses or as the occasion calls for? Well, enter your fairy godmother. Her name is Haley Pavoni, and she is the founder and CEO of Passion Footwear. And that's not passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N. It's Rather, it's like passion, like fashion with a P. Oh, nice. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And her company um, has created fully convertible high heels. And Haley has been featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. And some of our listeners might even know her from her appearance on Shark Tank in 2021. And basically how it works, you can go to their website, which I'm going to give you here in a second, and uh, you can watch a video about how you convert your high heels to flats in just seconds. But basically it involves hitting this hidden little button at the base of the heel, then you twist it, it comes off, and you remove it. And then the heel itself is attached to what they call it a stello, which is kind of a, a curved rod that runs under the arch support of the bottom of the shoe. And to wear them as flats, you remove that stello also, and then you put a little cap into the slot where the heel was once anchored. And then all of a sudden you have flats. These sound very, very important for people in New York. Yes. or, or <laughs> and, and believe it or not, it actually gets better because I mentioned that the heel isn't permanently attached to the Stella, right? There, there's two separate pieces, which means you can switch your heels out. Ooh, fun. So like if you have a high block heel on your shoe, you can switch it out for a stiletto or like a different height of a block heel. And because all of this is separate, they can be mixed and matched. So you can have like a plain leather heel and then switch it out for a metallic gold stiletto, like for a completely different look. So it's kind of like a modular shoe wardrobe, which is Interesting. Cool. And we all know Dress Listeners at April is all about technology, uh, yes. especially looking towards the future. And this definitely sounds like something of the future, right? Mm-hmm. So we haven't tried them. We can't personally attest to their level of comfort <laughs> or, or how it all actually can, works. But conceptually, I think this is 
long overdue. They have an entire bridal line cast and and crazy little heels that you can switch out with rhinestones and, you know, chrome and mother of pearl. Um, Some of the bridal ones were lucite that had pearls in the heel itself. Wow. So if you want to see what they're doing over there at Passion Footwear, you can head over to Passion, like fashion with a P, passionfootwear.com. That's P-A-S-H-I-O-N. And they're not sponsoring this episode. I just think it's very cool. (laughs) So moving beyond new accessories, I am going to take us all the way across the world to the Philippines, where there's an exciting bit of fashion history news. Dress listeners might remember that we did an episode called Fashioning the Philippines Salvation Lim Higgins, um, in which I interviewed her son, Mark, about her incredible life and legacy. For those of you who don't remember or need a refresher, Salvation was known professionally as Slim, and she was one of the Philippines' most prolific and influential fashion designers. She had a career spanning four decades, and she was really instrumental in defining the Philippines' golden age of couture that paralleled that of France in the post-World War II era. Mm -hmm. April, I don't know if you remember, she opened her uh, boutique the same year that Dior did in 1947. Yeah. Um, And she is this incredible visionary and skilled architect of design, and she really deserves her place among the pantheon of great 20th century fashion designers. And just last month, her home country recognized her incredible contributions by awarding her posthumously with the high honor of the Order of the National Artists, which is basically like the OBE in Britain or the Kennedy Center Honors in the U.S., And she was one of eight extraordinary Filipino artists, quote, whose vision, imagination, and dedication make manifest the genius and fire of the Filipino soul. And it's just such a cool honor. Um, Her son, Mark, reached out and told me about it. He, as mentioned, accepted that honor in her place. And he had such wonderful things to say about his mother. You know, he said, a truly great masterpiece, whether it is a painting or a sculpture, a novel, a piece of music or dance is timeless. Something that is decades or centuries old can still inspire generations after it was created because it was original, beautiful, and exquisitely crafted. The fact that my mother's work still resonates with so many people today is an indication of that. And he goes on to tell us that in creating a garment, she would apply two elements to her process, architecture and sculpture. The architecture would surface in the building of the form, the scaffolding, construction, and the engineering that would support this masterpiece. Always thinking in three dimensions, her final touch would be molding and manipulating the fabric onto the human form, transforming the wearer into an elegant human sculpture. And today, Slim's body of work serves as a testament to how clothing and textile can form just as powerful a narrative as any other artistic medium. So just a really, really cool. I think she's the first fashion designer to ever receive this honor. And actually, the honor was accompanied by an exhibit of her designs from the 40s to the 90s when she passed away. Um, And just a really cool, wonderful woman um, who inspired a generation of designers. So that's so lovely. Yeah. Yes. Congratulations to Mark and his whole family. Yes, absolutely. We love that. Okay. This might be the opposite of that. I'm going to bring us down here for a second, but I have some important things to say. Um, (laughs) Down here, like, (laughs) you're taking the attitude, you're taking the the tone of the podcast down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, All right. So, as we all know, I live in New York, and compared to most cities in the U.S., goods and services in New York are comparatively more expensive. But this week, the price of trash bags here has hit an all-time high. A single trash bag can cost 
get this, Cass, upwards of $1,800. What? Well, that is if you're purchasing one of Balenciaga's cat oh my skin gosh, leather trash bags get that me they just started released April. this week. <laughs> okay, this is what I'm saying. I feel like I have some important things to say. I can't. I just can't with this anymore, Cass. And it's not just me, apparently. You're not alone. A couple days ago, the Business of Fashion published an article on Balenciaga designers Demna Javalia's ongoing they, and this is business of fashion's term, tour de farce, <laughs> <laughs> and the media impact value of the company's sartorial stunts. So in the article, writer Joan Kennedy traces this back all the way to 2015, when I'm sure as many of our listeners will remember that Demner released a parody of the DHL shirt for his brand, Vetement. The shenanigans continued when he took over as creative director of Balenciaga that exact same year in 2015, um, releasing a Balenciaga-fied take on Ikea's oversized blue plastic fracta bag, costing in the store like 99 cents, costing Balenciaga-fied about $2,100 in 2017. Oh, my goodness. Then there was a shirt attached to a T-shirt, a button-down shirt attached to a T-shirt that came in 2018 that everyone was very confused about. And then in subsequent seasons, um, Balenciaga's collaborations with Vibram's toe shoes and, of course, Crocs, which all fall in the range of, like, anywhere from $600 to $2,000. And then most recently, their release of a broken-down version of their Paris sneakers, uh, where the shoe has basically, like, been disintegrated, um, originally costing $500, not disintegrated. Uh, the destroyed version costs an additional $1,350. So you're looking at almost $2,000 for this pair of sneakers. Okay. Here's what I have to say. And and listeners, trust me, I do understand the commentary that Demna is attempting to make here. Um, Kennedy put, puts it very succinctly. You know, she says, this is about questioning the definition of luxury and poking fun of fashion. I get that. And your customers, I would argue. And that is my point. That yeah. is exactly my point. So it's very Duchampian, right? Exactly. Artist Marcel Duchamp, started making ready-mades in 1914. Most famously in 1917, he released his fountain, which of course was a uh, ready-made urinal, which he signed Armut through an art gallery called a Sculpture. And this is like a really early example of conceptual art, which basically calls into question what is and what isn't art. So you sped through that pretty quickly just to reiterate what April said. Urinal signed as art. Yes, yes. In 1917. Yes. Yes. Ahead of its time, really. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this questioning of conceptual art and what is art and what isn't art, I don't, being over 100 years old now, um, it's really played itself out, you know? And what I don't understand here is the point of applying it to fashion right now, applying this found object to fashion, because Unless, like you said, Cass, the point is less about making fun of fashion and instead making fun of the Balenciaga customer. So from the company's standpoint, the joke here is so insular and so fashion insidery that it's almost straight out of Zoolander, right? Yeah. Remember when they did the Derelict collection? <laughs> you know, it's almost like they're like, hey, we could just slap a Balenciaga label on anything and they're going to pay a 2,000% markup. That's exactly what I would argue is happening here. 
Yeah. And, and, and then from the customer standpoint, the people that are buying these things are like, hey, let's buy this symbol of the working class, you know, in the case of the Ikea bag or the DHL shirt, but we're going to pay way more money for it so we can flaunt the fact that we aren't like you, the people who shop at Ikea and the people who work at DHL. And so, you know, just in my opinion, this is all so very mean girls, fashion insidery, um, from both the point of the people who consume these items and also the company. And it, it, it's just a one-trick pony that should have been retired after the first stunt because the point was made back in 2015 and everything else that has followed since then is just a cruel joke, in my opinion. So it, it's not about fashion at all. Just saying. Yeah. Well said, <laughs> April. Good job. And there's a lot of artists who do that, right? I mean, who is the guy who taped the banana to the wall at Art Basel in Miami, right? Mm-hmm. It's like making fun of art and then m- still profiting off of that. So yeah. it was Maurizio Catalan, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but very well said. Whose work I do love, by the yes. way. <laughs> Even if it is a banana uh, uh, taped to a wall. Um, I mean, it's a commentary, right? But some commentary, I would argue, as you just did so eloquently, is more important than others and, quite frankly, can be offensive. hmm Yeah. And that's one of the arguments about high fashion, right, is the elitism of it all. I also remember reading about how he was making haute couture, quote-unquote, accessible because he, was, he created an haute couture boutique where customers could walk in, try on the garments, and purchase them. Whereas That's, that's called ready-to-wear. Well, I think it's, yeah, exactly. But also just like that's only accessible to people who can afford to pay tens of thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. for garments. So, you know, there's definitely something to be said there. I think Balenciaga is one of those really interesting high fashion brands that has crossed over to pop culture in so many ways because of its association with people like the Kardashians, for instance. And like you said, these stunts, like Kim showing up taped in the Balenciaga tape, you know, outfit Mm -hmm. that she was wearing. Yeah. And and I just want to go back really quickly to this article in Business of Fashion because Kennedy's point, um, Joan Kennedy, who wrote the article, she makes the point that a lot of these fashion stunts have driven Balenciaga's MVI or media impact value, or I guess MIV. But basically, this is the measure of publicity that it receives on social media for brand recognition, et cetera. So the release of the garbage bag last week supposedly garnered the company more than $2 million in media impact value. And a few months back, the decomposing Balenciaga sneakers, they they were released this past spring, generated apparently $5 million in media wow. impact value. So there might be a little bit of strategy to this, but I'm still going to stick with the fact that they're making fun of their customers and to do it their, at their expense. Yeah, yeah. Also, this ties us back to the Marilyn Monroe dress controversy, right? Because this is inarguably why Ripley's did that as well. It's, I mean, maybe it's media value content, but I guarantee visitorship and, you know, people going to visit Ripley's, believe it or not, Instagram page all went up, 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 up at the expense mm-hmm. of Marilyn's dress. So, you know, the question is, is just like, is it worth it? What's the value in it? And who is it really hurting and benefiting at the same time, right? So... Always interesting when corporations and money are involved. (laughs) (laughs) How can they not be, I guess? A 
because we are always all over the place on these fashion history nows, I'm going to take us all the way to South Korea. Sweet. Um, to talk about a wonderful thing that happened this summer. And that is that, as reported by Next Shark, which is an Asian and Asian American news source, um, they reported in June on the fact that the traditional dress of Hanbo was claimed as intangible cultural heritage of Korea. And I just want to say that I also always pronounce this incorrectly. I looked it up. Han, I usually say Hanbok because it's H-A-N-B-O-K. And so it's pronounced Hanbo. And on June 22nd, Korea's Cultural Heritage Administration announced that, quote, it has recognized the outstanding value of the Hanbo culture and how it embodies Korean people's identity. And the article gives a brief description of how Hanbo consists of a top, skirt, trousers, and then this very signature ribbon that closes the top. The article also provides this brief history of the Hanbo, which was reportedly first worn by Koreans dating to the first centuries BC. And this is something that actually, April, we hope to elaborate on further in future episodes this season. So stay tuned, dress listeners. Yes, coming to you soon. We have some (laughs) things up our sleeves. Okay, um, I guess I'm just the dress Debbie Downer (laughs) on this episode. Um, We would be remiss not to mention the passing of one of fashion's greats. Of course, Issey Miyake died um, this past week. And we will, I'm going to do an episode, um, tribute episode um, on him very, very soon. So stay tuned for more on that. But if you would like to learn a little bit more about his life and career and his work in the meantime, there's actually a really great video produced by Video Fashion News on YouTube cast. I think it was made in like 2018, 2019. It's fairly short. It's 25 minutes, but it is just a really lovely overview of his career and his innovations. And, you know, he was one of those fashion designers who was truly also working in the realm of art and sculpture as well. So if you want a little overview of his career, you can check that out um, and stay tuned for our tribute episode to him coming in the next few weeks. Yeah. And just to remind the dress listeners, we put links to all of these in our show notes. So check there for those um, links of the everything we're talking about today or almost everything. We also, something else that you could watch, a couple fashion films or fashion-related films for your viewing pleasure. There's a charming new short animated film about one of our favorite just guests, and that is the groundbreaking supermodel Pat Cleveland. And this film is called The Girl from 7th Avenue, Pat Cleveland and the Runway Revolution, and it's available on Vimeo.com, and we're going to provide a link for you there. What else do you have to watch, April? Um, well, I just watched Miss Harris Goes to Paris. You did? I'm so jealous. I did. Um, and so I knew, like, the general plot outline of the uh, movie, and this is not giving anything away here, dress listeners, because it, it happens right at the very beginning of the movie. But um, basically, an English woman who has worked her whole life, you know, as in domestic service, mainly as a cleaner, she becomes enamored with one of her clients, her her boss's Dior gowns, and decides that she's going to save up and go to Paris to get one. Well, shenanigans ensue. I didn't realize that it was specifically about the house of Dior until I started watching the movie. So it was very charming. Is it a surprise that there are some factual inaccuracies in the film? Probably not. (laughs) Um, 
because there's a fashion show that, of course, takes place as part of the movie. And the very first piece that comes out in this fashion show cast was the bar suit, which is, of course, Dior design classic. It's one of the most famous Dior looks out there. But the film was set in 1957. So what's wrong with that picture, my friend? (laughs) I thought it was supposed to be like a tribute to his 10-year anniversary or something like that. Yeah, the fashion show is like a 10-year anniversary show, they say. But I just want to point out that the bar suit was actually part of his very first collection, the Corolla line, and that's 1947. Yes, absolutely. Maybe if they were going to try to, if they were trying to do Dior's greatest hits, uh, maybe that's what they were doing. But um, yeah, so they do name the dresses. I suppose I could go back if I really wanted to with a fine-tooth comb and and date all the dresses that are specifically named. So maybe one of our listeners would like to undertake that as a fun project. Yeah, and the costumes are designed by one of the greatest costume designers in history, Jenny Bibbin. And uh, she just won her third Oscar actually this year for her insanely amazing costumes for Cruella. If you have not seen that movie... I was so pleasantly surprised by Corella. I can't say enough, because she's a fashion designer, and Jenny's costumes for her are insane in that movie, so check that out. And the Dior in the movie is superb. It's beautiful. Yes, and did you know that she was given access to Dior's archives to do archival research, which is so I wonderful. That. Yeah, That's so great. And she replicated 16 original looks from Dior. So she, and she said, I read this article with her on Hollywood Reporter, and she said, I wanted to honor Dior. I wanted to make sure it did not look like a Jenny Bevan, um, and apologies, it could be Bevan, Jenny Bevan attempted Dior. I really, really wanted to people just to just believe and not worry about it. So she actually worked really hard to recreate it. And she worked with a past dress guest, John Bright, um, who, of course, she won an Oscar with in the 80s for A Room with a View. And John came on our show to talk about his incredible career as a costume designer. He's also a costume collector, and he's the founder of London's Cosprop. And Cosprop creates props and costumes, and so they work together to recreate these Dior looks. And it's it's very fun film. Everyone go out and watch it. It's in theaters, but you can also rent it on YouTube. Oh. Um, or I think it's also on Vimeo. I don't know. Some of those streaming platforms, it's, it's available to rent now. Not cheaply. I think it was like $20. But, you know, for me living in New York, if I went to the theater, it was going to be $20 anyway. <laughs> so. Well, and that's a good point, too, is that um, sometimes when they first come out, they're expensive. But usually within like a certain amount of time, they're finally I waited, for instance, the new Downton Abbey movie. I waited a couple months, and then finally I could afford it. But Same. Yeah. You want to talk about it? I've seen it, too. Oh, sure. Yeah, let's do it. I watched it a couple months ago. So to be perfectly honest, I really wasn't watching it from a critiquing angle (laughs) for the purposes of the podcast. I was just more just watching it for fun. So maybe you have some more critical insight that you would like to share with our listeners. Um, I mean, if you're a Downton Abbey fan, which I am, you know, the film itself, not much, as my sister and I were talking about, actually happens. The plot is, like, pretty, you know, basic. I felt the exact <laughs> same. I was like, why Why is the writing weird Yeah, this one? it was a little weird. It was also, like, they're kind of a little out of practice because they hadn't filmed in so long. And I was also really confused about why they chose to set it in 1928, which is just one year after the last film. But, like, it's been years since the last film, and, like, the actors have aged, and, you know, 
It just felt very weird to me because I'm like, we should be in the 30s by now, but it's not. It's set in 1928, which means that there's some fabulous 1920s costumes by Anna Mm -hmm. Robbins, who, of course, was a guest on the show. She came on and talked about the costumes for the first Downton film. So if you haven't seen that or listened to that episode with us, Dress Listeners, check it out because she's wonderful, lovely. I mean, the costumes were perfectly lovely. And as we know from talking with her, she sources a lot of original vintage and her team works to like repair vintage. And then of course she has a whole team that recreates it as well. Yes. Very fun. Again, lovely. Worth the watch. Yeah. Okay. Next up on my list, and and I'm emphasizing next because I haven't actually watched this yet. It's on my watch list. I just discovered its existence this week. A documentary that I'm dying to see called Women He's Undressed, which is a documentary on Ori Kelly. And for any of our listeners out there, Ori Kelly is one of the legendary great Hollywood costume designers. Um, He was actually born in Australia as Ori George Kelly, but just a few of the films that he designed the costumes for cast include Casablanca, Some Like It Hot, starring none other than Marilyn Monroe, he did Anti-Mame, gay classic. And he also did An American in Paris, uh, for which he won an Oscar. And that was just the first of his three Oscars. And that's not even including all of his other Oscar nominations. So I'm dying to see this documentary. Apparently, it does delve into his supposed on-again, off-again relationship with Cary Grant. Oh. Whom he lived with for a period of time. And Ori Kelly wrote in a memoir which detailed their relationship, but apparently it's never been published because um, Cary Grant's estate sued to prevent its publication. So apparently they do get into that in the documentary, and I'm very much looking forward to watching it. Yeah, absolutely. I will watch it with you, perhaps. We should do that thing on Amazon where you can do like the watching party. Oh, yeah. How do we do that with our listeners? That would be a blast. Oh, yeah. Let us know if you guys (laughs) want to do that sometime. We could all watch something together and then we could have like a chat dialogue happen. Yeah, absolutely. They kind of have, I can't remember what the hashtag is now, but on Twitter, there's like a thing where a bunch of historians will watch a movie together. Um, and comment on it, and they all use the same hashtag. So we could definitely do something like that, although we're not on Twitter. Why have we not thought of this earlier? (laughs) And that actually just reminds me of something I was not prepared to talk about, but I had wanted to talk about and forgotten, and that is the TCM limited-run series Follow the Thread, which has been premiering all summer, Lights, Camera, Fashion. It's a limited series about fashion and film. And Rice is on it. Yes, Rice is on it. Tim Gunn's on it. Zaldi's on it. Bob Mackey's on it. So many wonderful guests. It was inspired by the Met Exhibit in America, an anthology of fashion. And it's they're just like short little videos um, and snippets that talk about, you know, the history of fashion and film. And really, really fun. Definitely check it out. I was watching it on HBO. Um, so if you HBO, you can check it out there. And another fashion film we have, fashion historian Caroline Reynolds Milbanks to thank um, and her wonderful Instagram account. If you're not following her, you should because she's a wonderful historian. Her Instagram is at Jupecoulot, J-U-P-E-C-U-L-O-T-T-E, which is very fitting. We have her to thank for enlightening her followers to this film called Artists and Models Abroad from 1938. Mm. Have you ever heard of that, April? 
No, I don't. I guess I missed her post because I, I do follow her. In fact, we know each other. So um, interesting. We've been trying to get her on the show for many, many years. <laughs> I keep. I'm wearing her down every time yeah. I see her. Um, she's a wonderful, wonderful historian, and her brain is like a sponge. She has so much information, especially on like American fashion history, which is really interesting. So, in a recent post that featured this beautiful Elite gown, which is of course Madame Gray's first couture label, and she, the accompanying text says, um, is about this movie artists and models abroad, and she tells us that the silly pot involves an American acting troupe led by Jack Benny, and they're stranded in Paris, and then until they can cobble together funds to get home. And the bind they are in leads to participation in a fashion sequence set in a Paris exposition-type pavilion of feminine arts. But what's so fascinating and wonderful about this film is that they use actual Paris haute couture dresses, uh, hats, costume jewelry, furs, and lingerie. And she tells us that they were all selected for the film by Lillian Fisher. Do you know who that is, April? I don't know. She was editor of the French Harper's Bazaar. I'm going to ah, give you some clues. Who had okay. formerly been a top American fashion model at the oh, House of Lucille. Lucille. Yes, 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 yes. I knew who, I knew. as soon as you got that, I was like, ah, oh, I know who that is. Yes. Yes. That's so interesting. As Caroline tells us, she had an exotic moniker, as a lot of Lucille's models did, and hers was Dinnerzod. And along with Marion Morehouse, she was, you know, those are two of the most distinctive models of the 1920s, mm-hmm. um, posing for the likes of Steichen and others. So I thought that was really, really cool. Um, I had no idea that she was a Harper's Bazaar editor, although I guess I should not be surprised. I did not know that either. I think there is an episode in there um, to be done on the career trajectory of the Lucille models because some of them went to, on to be um, Ziegfeld Follies girls and big models in these in the United States. So um, we will get into that at some point, I'm sure. Absolutely. And just um, an example of the haute couture on display. So this is the 1930s. So Scaparelli, Jean Lambin. Uh, House of Worth, Lucienne Lelong, um, and of course, Alix. So, so cool. And actually, you can watch the film on the Internet Archive. I have not watched the whole film, so I can't attest to if it be it's any good. But you can, I can think, skip to like 55 minutes and watch this little fashion sequence yourself. Cool. Well, I'm going to give it a full watch at some point in the future. Yes, yes, yes. What else do you have? Just a couple other quick suggestions of things to watch. The uh, makeup reality competition show Glow Up is back on Netflix, which if you've never seen it, it's so much fun. Um, It's kind of like a project runway for makeup artists. And then A League of Their Own premiered on Amazon, which I have not seen, but I want to watch. Um, It's, of course, based on Penny Marshall's 1992 film of the same name, which starred Gina Davis and Tom Hanks. And it's based on real women's baseball leagues of the World War II era. Um, and that's all time one of my favorite movies. And so I'm waiting with bated breath to watch the TV show, which just premiered yesterday and as costume designed by Tracy Field. Oh, that's very, very exciting. 
I would like to mention just very briefly a few exhibitions that are closing ever so soon. So dress listeners, if you're listening to this the week that it comes out, you only have a couple weeks left to hit them. If you happen to be in New York City, of course, in America, an anthology of fashion and also its companion at the Met, at the Costume Institute, a lexicon of fashion, that show closes on September 5th. So run if you haven't seen it already. Also, if you're on the West Coast, uh, Guo Pei Couture Fantasy also closes on September 5th, 2022. And of course, Guo Pei being the uh, Chinese haute couture designer who works with this phenomenal team of embroiderers cast carrying on this tradition of Chinese embroidery, which is so important. You have to see it to believe the skill level on some of Guo's pieces. Craftsmanship is just amazing. And then very quickly, a trio of exhibitions celebrating Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee this year. There's an exhibition up at the Buckingham Palace until October 22nd, which this is so I said it's a trio, right? So it's like part one, part two, and part three. Each of these focuses on a different aspect of the Queen's reign. So um, the little bit of of the show that's at Buckingham Palace focuses on her accession to the throne in February 1952, and that includes official portraits of her and the jewels that she wears in them are oh, actually on display. Wonderful. So this, is, this is all blinged out. Uh, you can also see the gowns that Elizabeth and Margaret wore to their parents' coronations in 1937, so it's children's wear. On oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And then at Windsor Castle through September 26th, um, that part focuses on the Queen's coronation, which happened on June 2nd, 1953. On display, cast are her Hartnell coronation dress, which is amazing. It's, it's, Norman Hartnell was one of the officially designated fashion designers to the Queen. And apparently to design this particular coronation gown, he studied coronation gowns of queen consorts of the past. And then the whole thing is, again, embroidered, encrusted with embroideries. Um, And the motifs on the dress include little references to all the British Isles and also the British Empire's realms and Commonwealth countries, uh, which is very cool. And then also the cape that she wore for the coronation. Uh, Technically, it's called a robe of estate. That is also on display, and it features 18 different types of gold thread for the embroidery. And apparently, it took 12 embroiderers 3,500 hours in just three months to produce just the embroidery on this silk velvet and ermine trimmed cape by (laughs) Eden Ravenscroft, which has been supplying um, coronation wear since the 18th century to the the monarchy. Um, There's also jewelry in that. And just very quickly also, this exhibition also has a component in Scotland at the Palace of Holyrod House, which is open through September 25th. And um, what's on display there are the Queen's ensembles that she wore to Thanksgiving celebrations and years where she marked her other jubilees, and then also objects presented to her as gifts during her reign in Scotland. So closing soon, check those out if you are there. Yeah, and I have three things to respond to based on that, I think, if I can keep them in my head. One is Norman Hartnell, I believe, is one of the fashion designers that you mentioned as having written a memoir, correct, in our fashion designer memoir episode? I think so. Yeah. I haven't still read that one yet. Yeah. So, so if, if you are interested, dress listeners, 
um, you can check that out. And then you mentioned Eden Ravenscroft, which is where our past dress guest Jihei On works. Right. She is a tailor there at that historic house. Um, and then the final thing um, I'm proud of myself for remembering is that ermine is historically, you know, an emblem of royalty, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly why. Perhaps that's a question. I mean, really, it's because of luxury, right? Because you needed yes. so many of them to complete a cape. Yes. So um, I think a lot of listeners will probably be familiar with it. It's the white fur that has like the little black dots. And you see it a lot trimmed on a lot of royal garments for the very reason that Cass just mentioned, that it's considered this ultra luxurious particular fur. And that is because each black dot is the tip of the tail of one of the animals. One little animal. So each little dot represents one animal. So that's how many that it took to create that 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 piece. So it's very Debbie sad. Debbie Downer April today. I know. <laughs> Sorry. That's my fault. <laughs> I'm, I'm consistent from the beginning to the top. I really brought this episode down. No, you have not. <laughs> hey, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris was a highlight of this episode, inarguably. <laughs> um, so a couple other... Oh, and dress listeners, we are actually going to do an entire ex- um, exhibition dedicated episode coming up, Fashion History Now, because there's so many wonderful exhibitions. And we would love to hear from you, actually, about your local exhibitions. You know, we always talk about exhibitions that are on view in like, you know, the big cities around the world. But if you have any exhibitions that we you would like us to mention, uh, maybe at your local historical society or at your local museum, please reach out to us and let us know because we're always looking for inspiration for future episodes as well. Yes. So there is, there, like, like Cass said, there is a lot more going on um, this fall in terms of fashion exhibitions all around the world. So we will be doing another episode just focusing on on exhibitions coming soon. Yes, absolutely. And in closing, I just have a couple more suggestions of things for our listeners to do. A fabulous new vintage podcast for you to listen to is Shay Charlotte. Um, Charlotte actually reached out to us and told us a little bit about her new podcast. So she actually is tells us it's a rework of her old vintage brand. She literally upcycled her business, which I love, um, after she <laughs> closed her store. And she missed, she said that she realized she missed um, what she missed most from selling were her conversations with her customers. So that's what her, inspired her vintage podcast. Um, so each week she chats with an aspirational guest about their vintage clothing journey in a bid to inspire more people to wear more vintage. And as someone who is trying to incorporate more vintage into their wardrobe, you know, April and I try to aspire to only wear vintage or secondhand or um, ethically made clothing, definitely, definitely something I will be checking out into the future. And then the second thing is something that I wish I could be attending in October, April, and that is Dandy Wellington's Vintage Cruise on Queen Mary Mm -hmm. 2 an ocean liner trip, which I am just so jealous of this trip and everyone who was on it because it's a seven-night transatlantic crossing on the RMS Queen Mary 2, which, of course, it departs England from England and arrives in New York. There is like five-plus private parties featuring Dandy and his band. Um, Dandy, of course, is a style activist, a vintage aficionado, exclusive vintage wearer. He's been on the show before. Past dressed guest. Past dressed guest. <laughs> <laughs> There's vintage dance lessons. There's private cocktail parties. All the meals are included. 
Uh, it just sounds like such a blast. And of course, so many of like my favorite vintage accounts that I follow are going to be there in high style. It just sounds like such a wonderful trip. And I actually think that tickets are still available if you want to join them, dress yes. listeners. So I can't wait to see everyone's photos. I know. And April, I can't wait to see you because guess what? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna be there in like just a few days. Yes, you are. April, I'm so excited. Um, actually, in all of our years together, this is April's first time coming to visit me in New Mexico. Um, and we are going to Santa Fe for the hundredth year anniversary of Indian Market, which is free to pu- the public this year. So for our listeners who don't know, Indian Market um, is celebrating its 100th year anniversary. It's this annual um, art market in Santa Fe, which is the ancestral homelands of the Tiwa people. It's the largest juried Native American art show in the world. So SWIA stands for Southwestern Association of American Indian Arts. And as their website tells us, this remarkable event takes place on and around the Central Plaza in Santa Fe, sponsors over 1,000 Native artists from more than 100 tribal communities in North America and Canada. And artists show their latest work and compete for awards in SWIA's prestigious judged art competition. And one of their most popular events is the fashion show, which enter April and I, of course. <laughs> and um, actually, this year, they're having two fashion shows, Saturday night at a gala event, Sunday night, which is more, I think, open to the public. And April and I are going. And we're super, super excited. <laughs> I've, since we have started Dressed, I every year, I'm like, I'm going to come for Indian Market. I'm going to come for Indian Market. Well, we're doing it. We're doing yes. it. We're doing it. We're doing it. And I get to meet Leo for the first time. Which yes, I'm you very do. excited about. Yes. So. We're so excited to welcome you. And dress listeners, you can expect a couple episodes on Indian Market um in a couple weeks. Cause we are going to report on everything we saw and interview some of the designers that are going to be there, including Karina Emmerich, who of course is one of our favorite designers and a past dress guest. She'll be joining us again. So Yeah, I think that does it for us today, Dress Listeners. April, do you have anything else to add? No, I think we're good on Dress Listeners. Until we talk to you next time, and may you consider where the fashion history now resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so via email at dressiheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Dress History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.